It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Okay, guys, so today's episode is all about the future of AI. Our guest, Rob May, is a general partner at venture capital firm PJC, where he specifically focuses on AI, hardware, B2B, and an angel investor in over 75 early-stage companies, most of them involving AI. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you again. As if the first time I wasn't scared enough, we're going to have another conversation. Yeah, thanks for having (laughs) me, Brian. This will be fun. So, So, Rob, let's talk about your career for a minute. From You went from electrical engineering to business development and now AI. I mean, it's kind of been a fascinating path you've taken. Can, can you share with us a little bit, like, how did you make the shift from electrical engineer to AI? Yeah, it's a little bit random. Um, I started as a hardware engineer, so I designed computer chips, ASICs and FPGAs, uh, as they're called, for military and space applications. Lived down in Florida and, um, you know, worked there along the space coast. And it was a fantastic job but it was at a time when everything was mostly moving to software. So there wasn't a ton of hardware design work in the early to mid 2000s, except uh, in sort of, you know, government related businesses for the most part. So I um, I always knew that I wanted a, a, to be a more general management executive kind of person. So after a few years, uh, I moved over into sales engineering and then business development to sort of broaden my skills. And I happened to work for a tech startup that was doing embedded wireless software. So back before the iPhone, there were a lot more phone platforms to port to. Most of them used uh, a form of Linux. And we had Bluetooth and uh, wireless, uh, other types of wireless software for them. So, so expanded my skill set there, and uh, and then just really started had a couple of business ideas that kind of you know built because I could program. I built a couple of pieces of software here and there, and nothing ever took off very well. And then I. Uh, in 2008, uh, late in the year, uh, a friend of mine wanted a backup for his Flickr account. It got bought by Yahoo, and he was worried they were going to lose all his Flickr photos. And I was like, well, I could probably go in over the API and pull that data out. And so we created this company that um, well, really was just a project to start that just pulled data out of APIs. And people started coming to us and saying, like, hey, could you back up this? Could you back up that? And we realized that a lot of companies, uh, as they move data in the cloud, were still going to need a backup for disaster recovery reasons. Um, you know, even though you, you put data in the cloud and, you know, you use, like, you know, Google Drive and, like, Google's not going to lose your data, but one-third of all data loss is still user error. Um, and there are, like, legal ramifications and everything else. And so we ended up building a company called Backupify that did backup for cloud computing applications. We switched over to the business side. Uh, and that company was really successful. You know, we we sold it in 2014. It does over 100 million dollars a year now for the company that bought it in revenue. And um, and then that's when I started angel investing. And I'd always been interested in AI. I was a hobby roboticist, um, you know, in college and after, and was always messing around with new tech. And so um, started angel investing in AI. Started another company that was in the natural language processing space. Um, that company was in a more competitive market and I think, you know, did okay, uh, but not as good as my first company. And so I had the chance to join PJC and, um, instead of writing these small angel investing checks, right, you know, multi-million dollar checks out of the fund into to bigger rounds and later stage companies. And so I thought it was, uh, it would be a lot of fun. And so far it has been, I've really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, obviously there's been a tremendous, tremendous amount of success there, which congratulations on that. That's awesome. But so before we dive in today, you know, I'm pretty sure that everyone listening knows what AI is, but just in case, can you explain it to our audience? Uh, wh- what exactly is AI? Yeah, well, first of all, I will tell everybody they, they shouldn't feel bad if they uh, hear different definitions of AI, because a lot of people in the field even don't agree with the relationship, that sort of taxonomy between AI, machine learning, and data science, right? Some people say data science is at the top, and other people say AI is at the top, and data science is a subset and, and whatever. But I'll, I'll tell you how I define it, right? Which is, I think of artificial intelligence as any system that you put out in the world that adapts on its own. So if you're going to deploy an algorithm, and rather than write code that says, if this happens, do this, you're going to train it on data and put it out in the world, and it's going to change and iterate based on new data um, so that either the outputs that it can uh, put you know, out of the algorithm or the proportion with which it might put those outputs out can sort of change over time. That's what I really consider uh, artificial intelligence. And obviously, just like with, uh, you know, in like the animal kingdom where there are different degrees of intelligence, uh, I think there are uh, different degrees of intelligence in AI and variability there as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting topic, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but I mean, I think there's some of the negativity around some AI. There's some really great things that are happening in AI. There's some negativity that surrounds AI. But, you know, I guess one of the things I would ask is, um, you know, what are some of the applications of the technology that you've been involved in or aware of that our listeners may not be aware of? Well, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of AI applications, like any other kind of good technology, are ultimately invisible to the user sometimes. So right. it could be as simple as a a really good algorithm for echo canceling on you know headphones or something could be AI driven. Uh, and what would make that AI driven would be it's a model that can adapt to the um, you know the surroundings and the voice and the the noise and whatever more than than a standard algorithm that you could write. Um, and in fact, we joke sometimes that when you're building AI software, you almost need what we call AI theater, which is you need some function that like doesn't really do much, but just wows the user and makes them be like, oh, wow, there's the AI, right? Because otherwise they yeah. don't, they don't want to buy it. But, but sometimes when you say, where's the AI, that just means it work, it's working. Um, some areas that you might not realize, um, you know, that, that, that AI exists, uh, there's, a, there's a lot around, around voice control. Uh, AI has replaced a lot of things that didn't work well with better models around language translation. So Google Translate is now purely machine learning and AI driven. Um, you know, when you talk to your remote control or something like that and tell it to turn on a certain channel, uh, those voice commands are, are entirely AI driven. Uh, there's a lot more robotics now. You know, we just had a company acquired that used AI to pick tomatoes and other produce at indoor farms. So indoor farms can grow 20 times the produce per acre of an outdoor farm because you can control all the conditions, uh, you know, the the temperature and the it's easy, you don't get pests and you can control the moisture and everything else. And so you've probably eaten a tomato uh, or some other piece of, of fruit or vegetable that was uh, that was picked by a robot. And so the question is, how do you know what's right? And, uh, and to write an algorithm, like if you were going to write a series of rules that says, here's how you identify a ripe tomato, like it's kind of hard to do. <laughs> and, uh, and so the way you do it with AI is you show the robot a whole bunch of, you say, these tomatoes are ripe and these aren't, figure it out. 
and uh, and the training process, the mathematics behind machine learning enable the robot to build an algorithm that's sort of 99.5% accurate picking tomatoes when they're ripe. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing and, and interesting place where you would not expect to find that type of technology. I know the last time you and I spoke, you talked a little bit about uh, sort of AI in the healthcare industry. Um, can you give, uh, you, you gave, um, you've given examples in those conversations of how that's used. Can you share like one of those as well? Cause I, I actually found that really fascinating. Another area where you might not expect it, but the, the impact that it's having in that space is actually pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of ways to use healthcare, uh, AI. One is they're helping doctors diagnose things, right? So, so I'll, so I'll give you a couple quick examples. One would be, um, any given, uh, you know, radiologist who looks at x-rays regularly to, you know, figure something out is, um, you can only look at so many scans in your life, right? And learn to read them. And so there's always going to be unique things that you haven't seen or, or whatever. And, and AI can ingest those, you know, thousands of them per second and read them all. And so it can get much smarter about all the edge cases and the unusual cases. And so uh, AI models that, you know, might diagnose certain things off scans uh, can typically outperform radiologists. Now, typically the way healthcare works, we don't rely purely on the AI models. They, they are suggestions to a radiologist, but it speeds up the process, right? It's a lot of like, yes, no, yes, no, this is right. This is not, you can correct it. Yeah. Um, there are also tools. One of the companies that I'm invested in looks at uh, all the patient data together and life cycle and tries to say, um, you know, tries to provide sort of better suggestions for treatment because sometimes, you know, doctors, again, have their own biases and things they've seen and things they haven't. And so, you know, an AI might more rapidly learn from larger data sets that, oh, I know you think, you know, because human beings are so different, right? right. In terms right. of, I mean, even, you know, the perfect example is when I was growing up, you heard a calorie is a calorie, a cat is a calorie, right? And you just, if you want to lose weight, eat less. And now they're learning like, wow, no, it actually matters what your gut microbiome is like. And and all these other things. And so what you eat, and, you know, you and I could eat the same food and our bodies will process in different ways and might store different ways and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so when you think about those, that unique personalization, AI can sort of grapple with all that and look at all the variables across a, a thing and, and maybe recommend that like, Hey, I know normally on average, you would recommend this kind of treatment for this situation, but for this person and their history, I would actually do something different. So think about the Netflix recommendation algorithm, but for healthcare treatment, right? The way it's like, oh, well, you know, Rob would like this movie, but Brian wouldn't. Brian prefers movies like this. Well, you know, there are things about our, our bodies and our health that are similar. And and so, um, so AI can do some of that. But the problem that you have in healthcare a lot of times is the HIPAA rules and the privacy and the data sharing and, uh, you know, and you, you, you have to be careful. Um, even if you were going to do something as simple as like, like where you run into problems is people are trying to use things like chatbots to provide like, like to triage things, right? Like, okay, a lot of the healthcare system is overburdened because people who are just hypochondriacs or have very simple medical problems, but don't know what to do, you know, go, go to the emergency room or go see their primary care physician to be like, yeah, go take some Advil or use this cortisone cream or whatever. So people want to, want to triage that with a chat bot, but then you get into the fact that like, well, people have to read those transcripts and engineers have going to train data on them. And so, you know, do you, do you want to talk in there about, uh, you know, an STD or uh, anxiety or depression or something that might be more socially embarrassing that other people might see. And so, so there's 
So there are there are challenges to it based on the, the personalization of the data that you collect and the HIPAA rules around that. Yeah, but it is it is interesting. It is interesting that you know you take the bias out of the interpretation of something that you're looking at, and you look at it purely from pre- what I, what something has learned from previous experiences, and make to, you know an, an analysis as a result of that. It, it's really kind of fascinating uh, when you use that and this technology in that way. You know, you referred to AI winters as times in the past when you know we expected AI to take over and become popular and it didn't. I'm just curious from your perspective, why now? Why why have uh, why has it not worked in the past and, and why is now the time where we see it more prevalent than others? Yeah, well one of the reasons that it hasn't worked in the past was the computing power wasn't really there to train models. So there's there's a couple of different ways that you can do AI and this wave that you've seen since sort of 2014 or so is really driven by neural networks. But there are, you know, Bayesian approaches to AI. There are symbolic logic uh, approaches to AI. There are uh, evolutionary algorithm approaches to AI where you just, um, you know, there's a famous example where NASA designed this antenna by just evolving antenna designs. And it, it was a space antenna. And it was like, it's a crazy design that no human would ever think about, right? And it works really well. Um, and so, so there are lots of ways to do it, but um, neural networks have been around since the 60s, but they require a lot of data to work. We didn't know that at the time, uh, but there were a couple people who worked on them sort of through the AI winters, no matter what, who just really believed. Uh, and in the, in the early 2010s, started to realize that there were suddenly data sets that were large enough to, um, to train these models and really make them successful. And so when that happened, what happened was, I think it was the 2012 year that they had the ImageNet competition, right? And so, so what people used to do is when you're, when you're trying to teach a computer to identify, like, is this a cat, a dog, a bicycle, a car, you're trying to write code that describes the features. Okay, a bicycle has two wheels and a car has four wheels, but a car could have fewer wheels. You know, you're trying to write all these things and it's hard. And, um, and they would make, you know, 1% gains every two or three years in this. Uh, I think they've been working on machine vision for 60 years and we were sort of like 70% effective in identifying what an image was with a machine. Now this neural network comes along called AlexNet and, um, is trained on just, you know, millions and millions of images because we now have this big data set and blows everything else out of the water by like 10 or 12 percentage points. And then, you know, two years later, everybody in the competition was using a neural network. And so it's really the compute power to train neural networks and the data sets to do it. Because the, the other thing about training them is they're hard to train on traditional CPUs, your typical processor in your computer, because it takes too long. But as GPUs, which drive your graphics card, got more popular, um, you know, the difference is a CPU runs a bunch of instructions in parallel, right? It runs a recipe. Hey, you know, if you're trying to run the Excel program, then when somebody puts something in the cell, uh, you know, show that on the screen and then do this task and whatever. And a GPU is like, hey, there's 10 million pixels on the screen. I have 10 million little tiny processors that do one step, which is I just say, what color is the pixel the next second on the screen, right? And so that's actually how a neural network works. And so when you're training them on GPUs, they train much faster. And, um, and so that breakthrough also enabled this sort of wave to happen. 
Yeah, it's it's actually a really interesting time because as I was sort of doing some of the prep for this conversation, you know, there's data numbers out there that show that the number of businesses that are adopting artificial intelligence has grown by 270%, according to this, um, in the four years leading into 2020. And the other shocking statistic that was there was more than nine out of 10 leading businesses have ongoing investments in technology. And, you know, so I'm curious, in your opinion and in sort of expertise, what has driven this unprecedented growth? Like what are what are businesses using AI for that they couldn't before? Well, it's it's interesting, right, to, to dig a little deeper into those. Uh, and particularly since you use the words have ongoing investments in technology, because I think some of these have underinvested in culture around adopting AI. Uh, and I think workplace culture matters a lot. Um, so I think it's a couple of things. Uh, some some companies have legitimate use cases. I mean, I Google saves a billion dollars a year with their machine learning algorithm that uh, manages their data centers for power, right? Which is massive, massive savings for them. And I think people have seen enough use cases where they they know sure. there's something there. And there's also this FOMO, right? There's this FOMO that if you don't get out and do some of it, you're going to be left behind. Because if you're going to wait until the dust yeah. settles and it's all well understood, people are just going to have leapfrogged you, right? And you might lose your market position. So, so I think those things are, are driving it. Um, you know, but I think the problem, while a lot of people are adopting it, they're having varying levels of success because business people are still figuring out, like strategically and and you know from the from the perspective of business strategy and team building and all that, exactly how to make all this work, right? There aren't there aren't playbooks the way that there are. I mean, it, this goes back to, this happens in all new technology, but most of the technology is not quite as complicated. So when you went from package software to cloud software, like, yeah, some things change, right? You care about recurring revenue and churn and things like this rather than, you know, bookings and downloads and in terms of how you think about managing that business um, or how you manage it yourself. But like, uh, but I don't know that people are, um, it's taking time for people to realize how to manage these AI projects and where to really look for the best opportunities, right? Because you have to have you have to have workflows and data sets that enable you to to predict something or automate something. And a lot of times you don't. A common thing to happen in these programs is you go in and you say, look, we're gonna use AI and it's gonna do this task for us. And you gather your data sets and you do it and you're like, eh, the model's like 76% predictive. Like we'd just be better to use a human. So they don't always pan out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the other thing too is, I mean, let's be honest, there's a fair bit of hesitancy, right, around AI and even machine learning stemming from both lack of understanding of the technologies, but also there's fear, right? I mean, we've all seen the social dilemma, yeah. right? And I, I won't lie, you know, it scared me to death out of the gate. So, you know, I'll pose it to you. You're the expert here. Should we be scared? Um, definitely uh, on some things, right? I, I, you know, I think we talked about this before you and I did that, that I, uh, I'm very bothered by the amount of data that you have to collect for, for some of these things. And I think being able to, I mean, do you really want your life run by algorithms that always do what they think is best for you? And it, it can create problems. So let me give you an example. If you've used Waze, the traffic application, right? to get where you're going faster. And that uses a bunch of AI path planning and estimations on things and everything else. Well, 
what happens over the long term? How does the, you know how, how does AI decide um, you know as as more and more people use it between hey I could instruct you to go someplace that would make my route faster. So for example, if I know that you always leave your house at you know 8 a.m. and are always at work by 8:30, and today you actually left at 7:57, you've got a couple minutes early. Your traffic um, is is light on your path. And I'm leaving at I, I'm only leaving at 8:05 and running a little bit late. And today I left at 8:08. Right? Does it um, does it route you a slightly slower way so that it can route me a faster way? Right? And if so, how does it make that decision? Is it because it's advertising driven and I'm worth more as an advertiser? Right? To to be advertised to um, is like, you know, is it is it gonna optimize for the social good for like the least amount of time of all cars to be spent on the road so that you lower the carbon dioxide that we're polluting or the traffic? Is it, you know, um, is it gonna be is it gonna be the people that pay the most to the app that it routes the fastest? Like, there's a lot of fairness and weird issues in here that that do concern me as we start to over optimize everything. And um, so, so I do worry about that. I worry less for the next 10 or 15 years about the job issues because we're already seeing new jobs popped up. So I'll give you an example. OpenAI, which is a group that does a lot of AI research that's founded by Elon Musk and some other wealthy Silicon Valley people, came out with uh, what is currently the best state-of-the-art natural language model in the world. It's called GPT-3. And um, to interact with GPT-3 because it's just an API and you just you 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 can do things like you can give it two sentences and ask it to fill in the blank for the third sentence or whatever. And it does a good job of writing short clips like that. But there's an art to how you prompt it. Like if you want it to write a haiku or you want it to write a joke or you want it to write a list or you want it to write a resume, like there's skills to figuring out how to prompt it to write what you want. Um, similar to how if you've managed a lot of people, the way you sometimes you get the best work out of people or the best answers for something is a little bit different, right? Um, in in how you how you approach that. And so while what you're losing is some basic writing jobs, like nothing complex, nobody's writing, you know, news exposés with GPT-3. But if you're looking for like a headline for a blog post, like, yeah, that's going away, right? And you don't need to do that anymore. You can use GPT-3. But what you're gaining now is you're gaining this field that people are calling prompt engineering, which is how do you learn the most creative ways to prompt GPT-3 to get the best answers that you want? And I think that's just one example. You know, um, if you look at machine vision, uh, you're, you're getting data annotators. So people that, you know, look at thousands of images or video and I, and identify like, here's all the bicycles, right? Here's all the pickup trucks. Um, here's all the bananas, whatever they are so that you can train the model to go out and do it at scale. So you still need humans for a lot of things. And there's new types of jobs that are popping up. And I, I think that's, I think for the next decade, these machines augment humans more than take jobs. Um, you know, 20 or 30 years out, might they be better than us at, at everything? Like maybe, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, so, so I'm less concerned about that side of it, and I'm more concerned about the privacy side, right? I'm more concerned that I'm more concerned that Google's going to know so much about you that you know, if if, if Google knows that you uh, you know you used to be an alcoholic and you're trying not to drink, and like Google knows that, and somebody's willing to bid a lot for you to see an alcohol ad, like to me. Google should not be advertising to your weaknesses, right, or whatever. And like, there's 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 issues there, right? Or so I that, those are the things I worry about. 
So I think the ethics um, piece of this, I think, will actually play out on its own. I think, I think as we move into the time that we're in right now, you actually see more accountability and people questioning companies in regards to how they operate in certain models and in certain events. So I think the generational side to that will help keep this in line um, as we sort of continue. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information, but there's also that important ethical component to it that I think people will call you out on in the event that you act outside of what is deemed as appropriate. So I think that I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that, you know, that will continue to, to maintain itself. I'll, I'll ask you, you know, a, a final question, which is sort of wh- where do you see AI heading next? And I know that's a loaded question and we could probably have an entire conversation around that. But, you know, in terms of sort of some of the most impactful things that you think you'll see around AI, where where would you see that? Well, yeah, there's a little bit of a sort of multi-layered vision there, which is you're seeing two things happen in the market. On the technology side, you're seeing people start to move beyond neural networks. So the, the resurgence in neural network success has inspired people to look at other forms of AI, symbolic logic processing, and some of the things I mentioned before. So we're seeing that, and those are going to lead to, I think, a second boom eventually. As uh, they're not, they're not very fertile ground yet for things, but but people are investing a lot in them, and I think you're going to see some interesting use cases coming out of some of these other related AI technologies. On the neural network side, which has driven this latest wave, I think you're just really starting to get into the 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 first tier, the sort of, you know, outside of the bleeding edge adopters, you're getting into the early adopters now of, uh, of the applied side of this technology. So a lot of the companies that were formed between 2012 and 2018 were very tech heavy. And, uh, and a lot of them didn't work out. And a lot of them got acquired for not very much for the technology, but they pushed the thinking forward and they pushed the technology forward. And now as there are tools like, um, you know, data robot and uh, auto ML tools and these things that make it all easier. So somebody who's a t- technical and an engineer but doesn't have deep machine learn ex- learning expertise doesn't necessarily need that for a lot of products to be able to put machine learning into everything. And so I think um, I think over the next 10 years, I think you're going to see a couple of trends, I think. I think edge AI applications, so AI has been very centralized and connected to cloud. And I think being able to have it pushed to um, mobile devices, you know, uh, remote controls and cameras and automobile, <laughs> having it pushed to, you know, cameras and remote controls and automobiles and things like that out on the edge where they can make their own decisions without being centrally connected, I think is going to be really, really big. Um, and then I think automation within the workforce of simple common tasks to sort of augment humans and let humans focus more on judgment and decision-making and the things that AI can't do yet, uh, is, is going to be really key. So those are the, those are the two things that I would see, um, that I would see coming. And then I think you're going to see companies transform like that. One of the things that nobody's talking about, but some people, business professors, for example, are starting to think about is the way that the internet redefined a lot of core business practices and business strategy. How does AI do the same thing and will it? And I think it will. And I think learning to think that way of not, and maybe I said this to you before, Brian, on, on, on one of our talks, but like people just, they want to, they want to slap AI onto the end of things rather than rethink the value chain and the workflow 
for an AI world. And that's really what they need to be doing. Uh, and so it's it's pretty exciting, I think, about about where it's going to go. And particularly the, the natural language processing stuff is getting really, really good. And, uh, and it's finally going to you know, start to lead to some more practical applications than it has in the, in recent years. Yeah. I think the, I think the augment versus replace is, is an important factor because I think initially there's a lot of concerns around the replacement of the workforce, but I, I, I love the tie back to, you know, it's really the thought of augmenting it and allowing individuals, uh, to perform at a different level and, and, and let some of the AI be responsible for some of the, the, the more minor, you know, the minor tasks that might be taking place. So, uh, I, I find that really interesting. Rob, as always, great conversation. You know, I literally could talk to you for hours. I have so many more questions, but I, I really do appreciate you coming on and thank you so much for the insight. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Yes. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening to us on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Raleigh, and that was another episode of The Big Rethink. 